if anybody wants like a, a kind of a succinct, interesting little window into like, you know, the Boleskine, Aleister Crowley, Loch Ness Monster thing, there's like a 90s BBC documentary on YouTube that we watched called Aleister Crowley, The Other Loch Ness Monster. And it kind of goes through this whole story, but it also features big friend of the pod and big, big fan of Aleister Crowley, Kenneth Anger, who's interviewed yes. in it. And mm-hmm. he says the exact same stuff, too, that this was like a mistake for Aleister Crowley. To, he also says that this ritual was not uh, the Abermelon was not like a satanic or Luciferian ritual per se, but it nonetheless like opened up. Yeah, it's actually you know. a very weirdly pro Crowley documentary. It's yeah. like about how misunderstood he was and how great, you know, this ritual would have been. Um, yeah, but, yeah, vilified, yeah. but actually, he wanted to do immense good in the world. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, it's got this weird kind of vibe to it. It does have some other like expert. I mean, it has like the head of the OTO interviewed in it, and it also has some kind of random expert or scholar who basically says straight up, the, like, well, what Aleister Crowley discovered was that, you know, like, or you know, that people. Yeah, most people assume that magic isn't real, but like Aleister Crowley discovered that, in fact, it was very real. And, you know, everybody interviewed in it. it it's like a pretty weirdly like pro magic in the sense of like it believes magic and also believes that perhaps uh, some kind of portal or door was opened and out came Nessie as a result. Yes. And I just, you know, just another like really small factoid. So, it, you know, if we're wondering like who built Boleskine House, it was actually built by... Archibald Campbell Fraser of Lovett, who was uh, at one point the British consul at Tripoli in Algiers. He was a colonel of the Inverness local militia. And I just noticed something here that was interesting. He was the son of Simon Fraser, 11th Lord Lovett, um, by his third wife, Primrose Campbell, who was the sister of the man who had become the fourth Duke of Argyll, chief of Clan Campbell. So I wonder... You know, when Michael hmm. Aquino was going around shopping for like a duke ship or whatever, a laird ship in Scotland, that basically the the uh, the mother of the person who built Bulliskin House was from Clan Campbell and was from that line that he eventually, you know, I don't know, somehow wiggled his way into. He must have some Scottish ancestry somewhere to like, I don't know, do that. But I, I do wonder if Aquino was like tuned into that. Uh, and that's why he wanted to be, I don't know, connected. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, Crowley technically was like a laird in his capacity of owning this house. So I feel like maybe those two things do have to do with each other. And there's a lot of, like I said, there, you know, uh, Scotland was like a center of like, you know, a Bronze Age slash like earlier ritual complex or you know not necessarily Loch Ness although there there have been like Bronze Age sites found around Loch Ness and uh uh ritual uh artifacts I found one crazy uh thing that just like blew my mind it's like an old uh write-up of like an archaeological find Mm -hmm. uh near uh Glen Urquhart uh which is you know near Loch Ness uh Inverness it's uh from the proceedings of uh I guess some archaeological society in June 14th 1886 so I guess this is even before Crowley bought the place but the uh author uh William McKay found some stones uh, 17 years ago in a cairn on the farm of Dunbuy, Glen Urquhart, Inverness Shire. And if you look at the stones, they have like a picture of like 
basically Nessie, like a humped snake mm. uh, or like a winding serpent of some kind. And the article, I mean, I don't know, like this could be extremely outdated, like what people's understandings are, because it's like, you know, literally like over 100 years old. But he uh, does say in the write up that uh, the discovery of these stones at Glen Urquhart adds a new locality to the list of symbol-bearing stones and furnishes another example of the remarkable group of symbols consisting of the serpent and double disc, hitherto known only at Newton in Aberdeenshire. So it was actually, uh, I mean, I don't know if people have found other serpent stones since then at other locations, but it is interesting. This is one of the few places at the time that they found uh, evidence of sort of iconographic serpents. And the the double disc is kind of interesting too, honestly. Oh, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Well, I'm just saying, yeah. Discs. I mean, it's not irrelevant to all this. I think that I mean, Crowley in his write up of the monster, you know, mentioned that its eyes were like headlights. You know, the sh- the glowing eyes, right? I yep. feel like we might want to come back to that because there's definitely like a connection. Oh, you know? it, yeah, and I I want to come back to it too. We speak briefly about some of the later later people's experiences at Boleskine house, like when yeah. around the time of Jimmy page, cause there are also some, uh, some kind of cryptid adjacent, uh, spooky encounters that multiple people experienced. Yeah. There's definitely like a lot of cryptid investigators, uh, who went out there to like hunt Nessie ended up having like some very like high strangeness, kind of like John Keel type experiences like, uh, Frederick, AKA like Ted holiday is one of them whose life like really went off the rails and he like saw men in black, you know, he started off as being like Nessie is like a giant invertebrate worm. But then he was like, then he became persuaded that it was in fact the Loch Ness Gin. And, uh, yeah, he, you know, eventually drew connections, uh, with the UFO phenomenon. He like encountered men in black and, uh, yeah, had all sorts of, uh, interesting experiences. Also like on the same stone, there's two pictures of like what kind of looks like, uh, at least their interpretation of it. And it does look like this is like a speculum or a mirror. You know, it's odd to think they would have like silvered mirrors in this cairn, Mm. what they're supposed to be, but they are like, he calls them a spectacle symbol. A serpent intertwined with the Z symbol and the spectacle symbol. Hmm. Hmm. So I don't know. Maybe that's something to do with the the shining eyes. Hmm. Maybe. Part of a fish. Hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. These These are very serpenty. Very. Yes. I mean, it's Nessie. Yeah. 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 And and you know, okay. So people are thinking that you know because it really was like the the popular explosion was in 1933, which is, you know, I mean, it was a little bit of time after Crowley did his ritual there. Cause what was that? Like 1899 when he probably did the, the Abermelon ritual, something like that. I think so, it was after, yeah, it was like around the turn of the century. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, he did I, eventually like come back and resume it and finish it, but I think it was significantly later. Yeah. Um, yeah. He boasts like in his confessions about like the power that he had after he did uh, <laughs> that he finished the operation. You know, he says all sorts of very uh, wacky things in his confessions. He talks about how he had long canine teeth. Yes. He had long canine teeth. Yes. Turning into a dog man. Yeah, he did claim to be turning into a dog man. Wow. Uh, no, basically, that's uh, not the last time we're gonna like bring up dog men. By the way. Um, uh, yeah, they might there, yeah. they might come up again. Yeah, I did notice another article referring to Dogman that was uh, kind well, there's of there's that. Oh yeah, there's that too. There's actually two references to Dogman. But oh, uh, okay. but you know, I, I think you know it, it's interesting to note that you know he eventually did sell it 
And then there's a series of owners in the 20th century. The first one was a Hollywood actor, George Raft, who I guess tried to start like a sausage business or a piggery. And after the First World War, but well, that then was, that failed was George, miserably. First, it was like a major who owned it, right? Well, no, no, like the major it. was after. After World War II, a major Edward Grant bought it. But then in 1965, he committed suicide in Crowley's bedroom with a shotgun. And then, wow, Edward um, Grant yeah. killed himself too. I forgot that. Wow. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then a married couple moved into the house after that. Uh, the wife was blind, and after a month, the man walked out, leaving the woman wandering around, unable to see. That's just weird. And then, of course, uh, in 1969, Kenneth Anger, an experimental filmmaker with an interest in the occult, learned that the house was on the market and rented it for a few months. When Jimmy Page, the guitarist of Led Zeppelin, heard about this, he bought the house in 1970. And, of course, he was absolutely like freakishly obsessed with Aleister Crowley. I believe that in the BBC documentary, they might have said that he invited the band members of Led Zeppelin to do like a magic owl ritual at Boleskine House. And then after that, really bad things started happening to them. I think John Paul uh, Jones is the only one that didn't do it. But then for Robert Plant and John Bonham, like Robert Plant's uh, young child died uh, like maybe a year or two after that. And then... Uh, and then John Bonham, of course, died, like choking on his own vomit in 1980. And that broke up the band. But yeah, I mean, just so much weird shit with Jimmy Page. But interestingly, in the BBC documentary interviews, his friend, his childhood friend, Malcolm Dent, who was basically Jimmy Page kind of handed the house over to him as a caretaker when he was running around in the 70s, like going on tour. And he had an interest, a number of interesting encounters. Uh, I can read here the quotes. He said, Jimmy Page caught me at a time in my life when I wasn't doing a great deal and asked me to come up and run the place. I never did establish why he fixed on me. When he moved in the house, quote, it was a wreck. It had been more or less abandoned. There'd been at least one fire there. Parts of the building were missing and it had been badly patched up. The grounds, which at one time had been very nicely laid out, were gone to hell, like literally. And although Dent was a skeptic of the paranormal, he soon started to experience strange occurrences. After a few weeks, he heard strange rumblings from the hallway, which stopped when he investigated, but resumed after he closed the bedroom door. After researching the house, he discovered the rumbling in the hall was supposedly the head of Lord Lavat, the, the builder of the house, even right. though he was executed in London. Actually, I think it was the father of the guy uh, got beheaded in London right. um, for treason. He mentioned Lord Le and he said this, yeah, his head like bounced on the stairs. Uh, uh, yeah. And that Crowley had like, yeah, heard about that uh, or even maybe heard the head itself bouncing on, on some occasions. Okay, uh, yeah. And yeah. he said, uh, this is actually interesting. Dent explained that above Boleskine, there's a place called Erogi, Erogi, I don't know how that's said, which is supposed to be the geographical center of the highlands. Boleskine was then the nearest consecrated ground to Orogi, and uh, it's thought his soul or part of it ended here. He also experienced, this is like so dogman, uh, the most terrifying night of my life at Boleskine. He awoke one night to hear what sounded like a wild animal snorting and banging outside his bedroom door. It went on for some time, and it was not until morning that Dent dared open the door, and there was nothing there. Dent added, quote, whatever was there was pure evil. Another friend who stayed at Boleskine awoke one night claiming she had been attacked by, quote, some kind of devil. Other occurrences, such as chairs switching places, doors slamming open and closed for no reason, and carpets and rugs rolling up inexplicably, failed to deter Dent from staying. Dent met his wife in Boleskine and raised his family there. 
And he, I guess Jimmy Page never spent a lot of time there, but he did everything he could to return the house to how it would have looked during Crowley's ownership. For example, he commissioned an artist, Charles Pace, to paint some Crowley-esque murals on the walls. These were based on the murals in Crowley's Abbey of Thelema in Sicily, discovered by Kenneth Anger and uh, Dr. Kinsey in 1955. <laughs> oh, yeah. Remember we read that? It was like there were a bunch of like children yeah. like having sex and yeah, like, orgies a- on the wall. Right, yeah, there's a, like, Ooh, it's hard to see what they were, but yeah, there's definitely uh, rumors that he had, like, painted, like, child sex, uh, uh, you know. Jimmy images. Page and, uh, yeah, basically, you know, uh, Kenneth Anger had to hand those over to Jimmy Page so he could get those recreated. Very um, interesting, yeah. But I guess, you know, right there, that sounds like a pretty frightening, like, Dogman-esque encounter, you know, something yeah. that was pure evil, like, growling at the door, waiting to destroy him. And uh, yeah, it could have been. It's interesting because, I mean, one of the sort of precursors, you could say, to Nessie is the Kelpie or maybe the Nixie. You know, there's all sorts of water sprites and uh, they often have a tricky component. Hmm. But uh, the Kelpie, you know, known as like the water horse is like a peculiar fixture of Scottish folklore yes. um, or of Celtic folklore. Um, basically, like the most famous Kelpie uh, framework is that. Uh, you know, this beautiful horse will like come out of the water and try to lure people onto its back, you know, and coax them to sort of saddle up on it. Mm-hmm. And like often siren, it like has yeah. a saddle on it. Yeah, much like a siren. And then once you get on the Kelpie, you'll get like pulled down into the deep, you know. So but one of the, the key features of these beings, you know, uh, Nox or Nixies or Kelpies, uh, these sort of water spirits is that they can shape shift. So I feel like that is a quality of Nessie as well. Much like uh, otters that, in uh, Japanese mythology. Yes, and in uh, in Native American mythology, as we discussed, uh, yeah. the Bigfoot. Uh, I forget exactly, uh, you know, I think it was British Columbia or something. I could be wrong, but uh, I think somewhere in Canada. But often the idea that there are, like, tricky water beings out there that will, like, seduce you and lure you to your doom is, mm-hmm. like, a very common uh, idea um, in, like, throughout, like, uh, different folklores and and uh, various you know beliefs but before we there's a couple of other interesting like Boleskine connections but before we like move on totally from Crowley uh it is interesting to kind of talk about kind of in line with what we were saying about like his own uh sort of change in his life uh post the book of the law he does talk a little bit uh he does say some more interesting stuff about his sort of conflict with Mathers at Boleskine um and some of the experiences that he had so this was after the book of the law I'm just going to read this part because it's interesting. You know, he's talking about how uh, he's frustrated with himself because whenever he gets to a good point in his career, he uh, feels like he needs to give up. You know, he says it is part of my character to rest my oars at the very moment when a spurt would take me past the post. I begin to be recognized as the one poet in England. Good. I say to myself, I need to bother about that anymore. Uh, I acquire most of the world's records as a mountaineer that lets me out. Nunc est bibendum, nunc pede libero pulsanda tellus. I reach eminence in magic. It is the signal for me to drop it. In mysticism, I lose my interest. Now, charged with the secret chiefs of the Third Order with a mission of such importance that the last event in the world's history of importance even approaching it was Muhammad's, I get cold feet, carry out my instructions as perfunctorily as possible, and even try to find excuses for postponing such work as I could not actually avoid. Wow. Uh, so, you know, he's uh, the prophet after Muhammad, I guess, you know, or uh, equally important with his Book of the Law. So, <laughs> you know, 
he really did not think this book came from him. And he probably was right. The, you know, the one but, channeled from Iwas. Yeah, the book of the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was making studies of it. And he said, uh, I was bound to admit that Iwas had shown a knowledge of the Kabbalah immeasurably superior to my own. I had the manuscript typed. I issued a circular letter to a number of my friends, something in the nature of a proclamation of the new Aeon, but I took no trouble to follow it up. I took a certain number of wide-reaching plans for assuming responsibility, but they remained in the stage of reverie. I dropped the whole business to all intents and purposes. I completely abandoned my diary. I even neglected a really first-rate opportunity for bringing the Book of the Law into public notice, for Mrs. Besant was on the ship by which Orada and I returned to Europe, and I conversed a great deal with her about sacred subjects. In Paris, I wrote a formal letter to Mathers, informing him that the secret chiefs had appointed me visible head of the order and declared a new magical formula. I did not expect to receive an answer. I declared war on Mathers accordingly, but it was a brutum fulmen, so an empty threat. But so basically, he felt like you know, I you know, I don't want to, but Iwas is telling me like I have to you know become the leader of the new Aeon and take control <laughs> of the of the Golden Dawn. Okay. Like, sorry, you know, Mathers, but I'm the new head, and uh, he didn't get an answer. So he was like, "All right, we're now at war. Sorry." <laughs> um, but right. he says, interestingly, uh, the fact of the matter was that I resented the Book of the Law with my whole soul. For one thing, it knocked my Buddhism completely on the head. Remember, all ye, that existence is pure joy, that all the sorrows are but as shadows. They pass and are done, but there is that which remains. I was bitterly opposed to the principles of the book on almost every point of morality. The third chapter seemed to me gratuitously atrocious. My soul, infinitely sad at the universal sorrow, was passionately eager to raise humanity. And lo, the magical formula denounced pity as damnable, acclaimed war as admirable, and in almost every other way was utterly repugnant to my ideas. I did not understand the fundamental principles of the initiation of mankind, and in my own case, I did not realize that Iwas was not necessarily responsible for the character of his message any more than the newspaper for reporting an earthquake. Hmm. So, anyway, the secret chiefs were telling him all this stuff uh, about what he had to do. Uh, and, you know, Iwas was kind of giving him instructions from, you know, whatever the source is beyond against Ari Thelemites for not, like... Uh, representing the the whole cosmology but anyway you get the idea so he eventually uh got back to Boleskin and he was going to do the uh whole ritual finally he was going to mm-hmm. finish Abramon and he was hanging out with his wife Rose who we actually met at Boleskin but she ended up you know well uh first let's uh, talk about what happened with uh with Mathers let me before I uh fully digress here so they got back to Boleskin and they made some sort of sporadic uh, effort to carry out some of the injunction of Iwas. We had arranged for leaving Egypt for the obstruction of the stelae of revealing. I did not understand the word or the context, and contented myself with having a replica made by one of the artists attached to the museum. We now proceeded to prepare the perfume and the cakes according to the prescription given in chapter 3, verses 23 to 9. I re- we had resumed my magical work in a desultory way on finding that Mathers was attacking us. He succeeded in killing most of the dogs. At this time, I kept a pack of bloodhounds and went manhunting over the moors. But uh, just to clarify what's happening here, you know, he was just getting back to work when uh, he came under occult attack by his former master, Mathers. And all his dogs just started dying one by one. All his dogs died. Yeah, most of them died uh, and one by one. 
uh, and his servants, too, were constantly being made ill in one way or in one way or another, like, you know, different sicknesses. We therefore employed the appropriate talismans from the Book of the Sacred Magic of Abramelin against him, evoking Beelzebub and his 49 servitors. Huh. Rose had suddenly acquired the power of clairvoyance. Her description of these servitors is printed in the Bag-i-Muatar, pages 39-40. I may mention Nimorup, a stunted dwarf with large head and ears. Uh... His lips are greeny bronze and slobbery. Sounds like a Hopkinsville goblin, but whatever. Uh, Nomin- yeah. Nominon, a large red spongy jellyfish with one greenish luminous spot like a nasty mess. Halastri, an enormous pink bug. As of this perfume of the Book of the Law, let it be laid before me and kept thick with perfumes of your orison. It shall become full of beetles, as it were, and creeping things sacred unto me. One day, to my amazement, having gone to the bathroom to bathe, I discovered a, be- a beetle. Sorry, to bathe, he discovered a beetle. As I have said, I take no interest in natural history. I know nothing of it. But this beetle attracted my attention at once. I had never seen anything like it before. It was about an inch and a half long and had a single horn nearly as long as itself. The horn ended in a small sphere suggestive of an eye. From the moment, for about a fortnight, there was an absolute plague of those beetles. They were not merely in the house, they were on the rocks, in the gardens, by the sacred spring, everywhere. But I never saw one outside the estate. I sent a specimen to London by the experts were unable to identify the species. Weird. Yes. He was plagued by beetles. Like yes. alien beetles. I assume Apparently. he could like crush them. They were like material beetles. Yeah, but he sent them to uh and they yeah, there's just a plague of them. And he sent them to uh, London, according to him, and they couldn't tell what species they were. They were like weird little beetles with little eyes. But the climax of all this happened when he was trying to protect Rose against the necessary attacks of Mathers. You know, then after that, he was like, okay, you know, I've taken necessary steps. So he just went on playing billiards. And, uh, you know, he was trying to put central heating into the house, attempting to instruct a small golf course on the estate. It's so funny, like, how he's, like, just a bourgeois rich guy, but also, Mm -hmm. like, this daemon man. (laughs) But anyway, so, you know, he's playing uh, billiards one day, and then he suddenly heard screams and oaths uh, from the direction of the kitchen, you know, uh, curses. So he snatched up a salmon gaff as the readiest weapon, and we hurried out. One of the workmen had become suddenly maniacal and attacked my wife, who was making her usual inspection of the offices. It was the work of a moment to gaff the offender and thrust him into the coal cellar and send for the police. As they were a long time in coming, the animal made several attempts to crawl out of the chute, but our vigilance succeeded in baffling him, and he was duly handed into custody. But nothing followed. It is one of the peculiarities of Scotch law. There is no private prosecution unless the police choose to take up any given case. You could be murdered ad libitum without possibility of redress. As the police in the Highlands are largely recruited from the assassin class, there is no other. One can well understand why the gentry maintain, to a great extent, the ancient custom of surrounding themselves with armed retainers. So, yeah, one of his servants went crazy and tried to kill his wife. Uh, The police didn't do anything. Because according to him, uh, in Scotch law, you know, if the police don't care, nothing, they have no obligation to do anything, (laughs) and you have to use your arm retainers. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Requisi at patreon.com slash subliminaljihad.